I ended up going to investment banking. I spent a year at Lehman Brothers, but even while I was working in banking, every Friday, Seawick and I would meet up at my apartment in Midtown and just jam on website. It was like a creative outlet. I just loved the idea of taking a client's needs, infusing it with a design interpretation of what you're looking to do. Here's some strategies on content and how to showcase information in interesting ways, and then working through with Seawick on building it. Welcome to episode 11 of the Idea Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Cho. So about two years ago, this would have been March of 2022, I had started my personal website, tylercho.com. And on my site, I started to house essays that I had written, podcasts that I was publishing, highlights from books that I was reading, and also clips from daily workouts that I was partaking in. And what I had realized over the years is that having a personal website and being able to share that with people has been an incredibly powerful asset because it has effectively created interesting vectors for people to engage with me in ways that they likely otherwise would have not. And personally, I have grown to be of the opinion that personal websites are really the future of resumes. Because these days, people don't want to see just credentials. What they really want to see is proof of work. Like, what have you actually done and what are you actually capable of doing? And being only two years into having started my personal website, I get very excited to think about how the development of my site will continue over the next 5, 10, 20 plus years. And how it might continue to serve as an asset for me to pull knowledge from my personal history but also to reflect on the progress that I have hopefully been making over the course of many years. My guest today is Peter Kang. He has his own personal website, peterkang.com, where he has been documenting a lot of the learnings, both personally and professionally, for nearly a decade plus. Peter is also the CEO of a digital agency called Barrel. And in this discussion, Peter talks to me about his path to starting Barrel, its development over the last decade plus, and also a bit about his personal learning journey, a lot of which is articulated in his personal website. I knew that when I had crossed paths with Peter at Capital Camp back in 2022-2021 timeframe, Capital Camp is a conference for professional investors, that he was somebody that I wanted to re-engage with, and I was really glad to use the podcast as an opportunity to do that. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Peter Kang. So Peter, appreciate you kind of joining for, for this conversation. I think part of the reason why I was excited to have this discussion is because we had met, it was a very brief interaction back at Capital Camp, and a lot of the attendees there. They're like typically investors, private equity guys, real estate guys, but you were running a digital agency called Barrel. And I hadn't really interacted with any creatives at that event. I'm sure there were probably others in the crowd, but I just didn't have any overlap with them. So was excited to kind of have the discussion because I didn't have an opportunity to kind of speak with you at length about like Barrel its origin story, kind of where you guys are at today. And I know there's been a lot of maturity because you guys have been running this now for 15 plus years. So maybe as a starting point, like Barrel itself, can you tell me a little bit about like what it is and how you guys came to be? First of all, thanks for having me. Yeah, Barrel was a 
digital agency that my co-founder Sewuk and I started back in 2006. So Sewuk and I had met at Columbia University uh, as undergraduates and Actually, it's exactly 20 years <laughs> since we met. And the origins of the company go way back to yeah, when we met at, at school. Because you know, the the thing I found out about Sewuk was he knew how to code websites and I had I also knew how to make websites and design as well. So we made a good pair. Like I would do the designing, he'd do the building on HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and we do all kinds of stuff for clubs, take on like freelance gigs with artists, small businesses, anybody that would pay a few hundred bucks to get their websites made. And so you know, the two of us got a lot of experience early on before we even graduated. And, you know, the thing that we continue to talk about was, hey, maybe one day we could kind of do something together. And I graduated first. I was, you know, a couple of years older than Sewuk. So I ended up going to investment banking, like a lot of, you know, Ivy League undergraduates at that time. And then I spent a year at Lehman Brothers. But even while I was working in banking, every Friday, Sewuk and I would meet up at my apartment in Midtown and we'd just jam on websites. And so it was like a creative outlet for me personally. I just loved the idea of taking a client's needs, infusing it with like, hey, this is like a design interpretation of what you're looking to do. Here's some strategies on content and how to you know, showcase information in interesting ways. And then working through with Sewuk on building it and making it go live. And like that whole process was just so much fun. And we had a lot of good times. And, you know, it was pretty crazy because I come home from work at like 9 p.m. He'd come down from Columbia and, you know, we'd kind of uh, set up in our apartment, uh, in my apartment, small room. And you know, we just get a ton of Dunkin' Donuts coffee and we just kind of start like just building from 9 p.m. till like 6 a.m. the next day, just straight through the night. And we, we kept at it for like a good six plus months. And during this whole process, I'm like, like, there's no way I could, I want to go beyond uh, this year in finance. Like, you know, Lehman Brothers was a good experience. And, you know, this was uh, a few years removed from, you know, when it ultimately went out of business, but like, it was like the heyday. I was in a really interesting group. I was in the CDO banking group. So like, it was, it was, we're thick in the middle of the, you know, like kind of packaging these CDOs and, you know, mortgage-backed securities. And so I learned a lot, made a lot of good friends, but then ultimately I was like, Hey, once my, I get my year-end bonus and that hits my bank account, I'm just going to walk in to my managing director's uh, office and just say I quit. So I did exactly that. And, you know, that's when, like just a few weeks before that is when we officially incorporated uh, Barrel. So, you know, hit the ground running. And really like we started without really a plan, a business plan or anything. We were like, hey, look, whoever will give us the work, you know, whether it's building a website, you know, we used to do some logo designs, you know, graphic designs, like we'll design your, you know, brochures, doesn't matter. Like whatever includes, you know, some kind of design, some kind of coding, like we'll do. We just scraped by, like, honestly, sometimes we were trawling, um, like posts on Craigslist asking for people to build websites for a small business and we did it for like, you know, a couple hundred bucks. So we, you know, we were like just hustling and we got some lucky breaks, uh, early, like, you know, a friend rec recommended us to like, a English, uh, school in Korea that we ended up doing a lot of work for. Let's see, we can actually, as undergrads interned for the NFL and had worked on some website stuff there. So we actually got some work from them early on to help help with some internal projects. So like little by little, we built up a client roster. But honestly, the first few years were, were an absolute slog of like just the two of us just barely scraping by, making maybe barely enough to like pay rent, you know, get some groceries, but that was about it. And, and so there, you know, sometimes I was just kind of living off savings. But for some reason, like we just stuck with it and, and you know, just kind of persisted until the, it became a real business.
Wow. And even early on, like when you were at Columbia, so you studied, it was film and history, yep. right? Yep. And did you have already like the seed planted at that time? Like, hey, I want to start a company or do something entrepreneurial on my own eventually? Yeah, I think so. One of the reasons I was drawn to Columbia was like, you know, they have like a really prestigious journalism school. And I was like, oh, you know, maybe one day I'll be a journalist. I think growing up, I was, I thought I'd kind of go in that direction uh, somehow. I always loved like making magazines. I had like a webzine while I was growing up as a kid too and everything. But when I got there and like kind of, I attended some like, what do you call it, career panels. There was like a journalism career panel. That was like the most depressing thing ever. Like these were folks that had, you know, racked up a lot of student debt and they had, they're working in, you know, kind of middle of nowhere writing for these dying newspapers. And, you know, just like it was, you know, everyone was complaining about how little they made in terms of money. And it was just like, you know, trying to catch that big break to maybe get to the New York Times one day. And I was like, that's not the life I want at all. But, but luckily, like I, I saw Columbia as an opportunity to be like, hey, look, I could do whatever after I graduate, but let me just study the things that interest me. And, you know, film and history were two topics that I just love reading a lot about studying, just being engaged as a subject. So I just, I did that regardless of whatever I was going to do for my career. And I soon found out like, you know, you go to a school at Columbia, you either do, you either go for your law degree, you either become a consultant or a banker. So the, I was, that kind of became a clear uh, path right after. Tell me a little bit more about just the Lehman kind of stint, because I would imagine, I mean, I, I graduated from Stanford in 2019 and I studied econ and the three paths were like, you go into investment banking, consulting, or maybe you like work for some sort of tech company in like a business analyst role. But I imagine like in 05, 06, kind of that time frame, like when finance was, was crazy that like yeah. everybody was going into finance. Did you feel mm. like that social oh pressure? Like how, how was that experience? Yeah, it was, I mean, like basically every, everyone in my like friend group was like interviewing for the bulge bracket, like investment banks and, you know, the, the consulting companies. And so, you know, like it was super competitive and like, it was almost, it, it felt literally like high school all over again of like, you're trying to get into an Ivy league school with a competitive set of, you know, high school students. And now you're Columbia and you're trying to get into one of these prestigious, you know, investment banks. And it was just the same kind of dynamic all over again. Honestly, though, I had not interned anywhere. Like one of the things that my peers had a leg up on me was like, they had interned at like these banks and, you know, a lot of them got like natural offers from places that they interned at and stuff. I had nothing. I, like I, I didn't even know what a discounted like cash flow model was or anything. Like I didn't know anything. So like I just studied up and like I had been involved in some like student clubs and stuff. So just by like having kept in touch with some upperclassmen who had graduated and went out to work at these places, I like finagled a couple interviews and, you know, was able to, was able to get through and, and just, you know, studied my butt off, like read all these little books on like, you know, how to do these interviews and eventually got an offer. When you did end up like leaving Lehman, was there any like pressure from your like parents or from your like peer group of like, Hey, what are you, what are you doing here? Like you had, a, you had a pretty good solid job working in finance at <laughs> Lehman and you're going to go and start your, your own thing. Did you feel any of that? No, actually, you know, so first of all, like the one thing I'll say about my parents is they've never kind of had expectations for my career kind of rare in that, you know, for, especially for Asian parents, right. They're always like, Hey, do what, do what interests you do what is going to kind of make you happy. And so at first they, I don't think they even knew what I did in the banking side, but then when I said I was going to quit, they were like, all right, cool. Like, you know, like best of luck on what you do next. So they were supportive throughout. And I think they knew that like, I, I'd just be self-motivated to, you know, just try to make it with whatever I tried. So nothing there for my friends. I think they just saw from observing me, like 
doing these other things while banking. Like, you know, I just remember people being like, you know, you're working like, you know, 70, 80, 90 hours sometimes, and you're still doing this web thing on the side. You must really like this thing. So, you know, it was kind of, it wasn't a surprise to them that I would want to pursue that and, and ditch banking. Makes sense. And so I guess Barrel, in terms of what it was it, during its origins and like what it is now, there's a pretty stark contrast. Like now you guys are, you have a, you have a holding company for Barrel and multiple like creative agencies within it. Early days, what was kind of the vision? And then like, what has it come to be? I realized summarizing 15 years plus <laughs> in uh, a few sentences is not easy, but can you kind of paint that picture a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think if I was to look back, it, it just a lot of early days of barrels are driven by like, hey, look, the work is fun and let's just keep doing what is interesting. And so thankfully that coincided with some really nice tailwinds of like, yeah, like people needed websites and, you know, the internet was growing. And so we naturally got a lot of opportunities and just being ones to kind of know how to put these websites together, made us in demand at different junctures. And so it was really, we just went with the flow, honestly. And like, we're like, cool, like business is growing every year, like without us really trying. And, and as more people get to know who who we are and what we do, like we're just getting opportunities. And so we just rode that wave. But like, you know, I think at, at a certain point, we kind of started to see the gaps in our knowledge and limitations to like how we ran things. Cause we were very much like craft oriented as in like doing the work versus business minded. We just had no financial sense of like how to think about profit margins and investing properly for growth and structuring the organization in a way that, you know, was sustainably growing and, and investing in talent so that we could delegate more of the responsibilities. Like none of that really crossed our minds. So it was like, one after another, like just things breaking, just having painful experiences and, you know, lots of like close calls uh, of like, oh, like, oh, that's what happens when you run out of cash or that's what happens when you, you know, don't have good way to collect on receivables. Like, it, like all these things, it was overwhelming, like for a period, like we were like, holy cow, like we're just, we're just drowning in like, you know, incompetence almost like it just, it was tough. So I think, you know, and there were probably times where we probably want to throw in the towel and just be like, Hey, let's just shut this down and maybe get a job or something. But, but then, you know, uh, say, okay, we, we, we're pretty resilient and we're like, Hey, look, let's just figure it out. And let's like commit ourselves to like getting better at the things we suck at. And, and a lot of that was like, let's study business. Like let's really understand the, the financial side of the business. So let's just understand more concepts about business. So we just became students, like started reading a lot of stuff together and getting immersed on the things. And we just, you know, started getting way more comfortable in like modeling out different things and, you know, talking to other business folks, learning from their lessons. So all of that really contributed to us running Barrel more as a business and thinking like, okay, like we are, our creativity and the craft that we enjoy so much is in the design and building of the business, not the stuff that the business produces. That's for mm. the people that we hire to care about. So that shift happened in the last like seven, eight years, I'd say. So so 10 years of at least 10 plus years of like muddling around. And then really in the last like, yeah, say seven years or so that where we've really become more business minded. And as we've, you know, become more business-minded, that opened up other avenues to express our creativity. And for example, this is the origin of our kind of holding company was really came from a, a challenge of just having been in business for so long. We we had accumulated a, a lot of clients, legacy clients that like we were still servicing that kind of no longer fit the, like, it's like, hey, Barrel, you know, we don't go after these types of clients anymore. They're either, either too small or, you know, in the wrong kind of industries Then we're trying to position ourselves for now. But they still produce revenue and there's you know profits from that book of work. 
so what do we do? Like, do we just kind of tell them, hey, your your money's no good here and just kind of turn them away? Or let's add it all up and, you know, end up being like a decent sized book of business. And so we were like, maybe we could spin this off as its own company. And, you know, let's also see if someone else maybe on our team might want to be interested in running it. And lo and behold, you know, one of our employees who also just happened to be a longtime friend of mine uh, that I went to high school with, he, he volunteered and he was like, all right, like, I'll do this. I'll, I'll like, you know, own this company with you guys and we can launch it together. And that's where Vaulted Oak, our support and maintenance agency came from. And we seeded it with, you know, a book of business and yeah, like Jason who runs it, he, he's been able to three exit in the last two years. And it's, it's been great to see that. And so once that happened, we're like, cool, like, we can own more than one business. We can kind of like structure so that we don't have to be so overwhelmed by it. You know, you have people running it. It's a powerful thing. So we we're like, what else can we do? And at the time for Barrel, we had evolved to specializing in Shopify, stuck with it uh, and, and, you know, just persisted until, you know, the, it became a real business. And so today, I guess in terms of how many different like subsidiaries under Barrel Holdings there are, so it's like Barrel, Barrel itself, Vaulted Oaks, and then there's there's a few other ones as well. Yeah, right? so B, BX Studio, which is the Webflow Studio, and then yeah. Bolster, which is the brand design studio. It's just those four businesses. Gotcha. And in terms of like, I guess, Barrel's core product. So if I am like a business owner and I'm selling consumers online and I want to redesign my website, is that like the kind of premier or primary product that you guys started with? And then you do a bunch of stuff beyond that as well? So we, we say, you know, e-commerce on Shopify is like the thing we try to help our clients get the most out of Shopify. So a lot of it is like you're a merchant, you have products that you're selling and, you know, you want to sell it on Shopify. So you know, a lot of times like these merchants have made the decision of like, all right, like we've heard Shopify is a good platform to sell stuff on. We should get our stuff on there and like, you know, have our customers go there to check out where we come in is like, look. We'll set up Shopify in the best way possible. So it represents, you know, kind of the user experience you want, the branding that, you know, reflects your branding and, and it tells your story and, mm -hmm. you know, it's structured in the right way. And then, uh, you know, it integrates with other systems you might have. So, you know, maybe on the, you know, fulfillment side or the either ERP side of things, or even on the customer experience side of things, like whether it's live chat kind of functionality or email marketing, like we can help you navigate and put all those pieces together so that you get this kind of complete experience uh, that you can then make sure whoever's coming to your site uh, or sees your ads and clicks on it can definitely, you know, check out in the right way and have the right experience with you. So that's, that's, that's what Barrel does. And, you know, there's a lot of pieces uh, that come with that because there's the initial like building the site and putting it up there. But then once the site is up, there's ongoing optimizations, right? As you, as you get customers coming in, as you, you know, release new products, as you kind of get analytics on how things are performing. You want to make tweaks, you want to expand, you want to, you know, see if you could get the site to be faster. So we're, we just have, you know, endless things that we can do for our clients to continue to enhance that e-commerce experience for their customers. So that's, that's what Barrel does. And at the end, you could just call us simply like a Shopify, you know, agency where we're, we're helping folks like really get the most out of their Shopify. It's interesting because even in tracking, like online social media content. Like if you think about like YouTube or the film industry, the progression with technology and a lot of these like software platforms that kind of allow individuals to do so much like content creation at a professional level is something that's like pretty remarkable. And it seems like 
there's been a natural reaction from Barrel in terms of like, hey, if, if Webflow becomes a platform, we'll create like a specific, you know, subsidiary business to service Webflow, et cetera, right? I guess in terms of like the maturity of the, the market since when you guys started to like 15 plus years now, is there is there any like potential for like digital agencies to not even be as necessary in the future? I mean, I realize that's pretty existential question, but is the value add like pretty obvious to you that it's just going to be, you guys have more tools to offer your clients or, or kind of, how do you think about that? So it's interesting, like the demise or death of the digital agency has been, you know, kind of predicted for the last, let's say 20 years. Cause like, you know, I remember when like Squarespace came out and people were like, oh, like you they don't need people like you, you know, companies like you guys anymore because people can just, you know, drag and drop, make websites. It's funny because like on one end for a certain segment of customers, that's true. Where like, you know, if you're a photographer or a freelancer or somebody just putting some kind of simple thing together, like there's, you can very well use a lot of these tools and get that done. But I think organizations, as they put more stuff into the cloud or online and have like different types of digital experiences for customers, the complexity just multiplies so much. And yeah. uh, and put on top of that, there's like other external factors, right? Like accessibility. So, you know, companies get sued if their sites aren't accessible. So, you know, that means like you have to be able to tab or have to be, you know, kind of friendly for visually impaired users or, you know, hearing uh, impaired uh, users as well. Like there's all these things that you got to now build into the site that like a lot of the companies can't, or it costs money. They have to invest in, in making, making sure those things work. And then there's a lot of different systems now that you have to you know, have them talk to each other. And so there's a lot of things that you could build there. So I say like, for sure, like even within Shopify, like early on, like we used to charge a lot more to customize a theme, like the, how it looks on the front end. Mm -hmm. I think the value of that has become less and less as, you know, it's become more commoditized and people can actually do a lot more out of the box and stuff. So maybe the value of that has decreased, but we, we end up doing more work, let's say behind the scenes of integrating Shopify with some other system or making sure like these five apps on Shopify work seamlessly together and they all look, you know, kind of consistent, like that kind of work still requires us to kind of dig deep. So there's always going to be shifts in the value chain, but there's always going to be areas where like someone's going to be like, that's just too much of a hassle or, Hey, like that's too complex for us to just figure out on our own. So we're going to need help. So mm -hmm. an agency, if you pay attention and you're kind of, you know, staying on top of how, what the needs of the clients are, like you can always find ways to deliver value and, and capture that value as well. I'm trying to think even from like a business model perspective in terms of like a digital agency, it seems like there are so many moving pieces. Like one, because the, you ultimately need to secure clients and each of those client projects can be very different, right? And then you need to like manage a talent staff that can support the work that's <clears> coming in. And then there's like cyclicality and and all of that stuff, right? I, I, would I would think that the simplest business model is I have a product. The product is like super standardized. Nobody has to touch it. It gets sold online. And it's and that's that's the way to like run uh, a hands-free business. But running a, a digital agency seems like there are like so many pieces to the puzzle. In terms of like securing clients and even like the business that Barrel does, if you were to like segment recurring revenue from existing clients compared to like new, new, uh, how, how do you think about that? Uh, I'm just curious in terms of strategy perspective. You know, it's interesting because I think that's the dichotomy that, that you just kind of mentioned with like product versus like, you know, selling services, you know, like I think, you know, all through 
my career, like that was the way I saw it. But like, you know, as I've been in this industry more and just kind of been in this business more, I'm like, well, it's not quite so simple because like selling a product, there's a lot of complexity too, like customer acquisition, you know, customer service, like it's a lot of work. It's just different forms. And on the other side of things, if you, you know, you can be very, you know, efficient and streamlined with, you know, how you run a services organization, right? You can mm -hmm. have a well-oiled machine of acquiring new clients, like, you know, have a very good sales and marketing uh, engine that kind of predictably at least like generates a lot of leads and gives you opportunities to kind of, you know, stay ahead. And then you could have service models where you could have annual contracts, you could have, you know, month to month stuff, you can have, you could be pretty, you could productize a lot of things within services too, or, you know, like maybe for example, for us, like our audits are pretty standardized in the sense that like, you know, we have an outline and steps and SOPs that like make it pretty repeatable on a regular mm. basis. But then like the work that comes after that might be more customized. But then even within that, there's gradations too. There's like, well, if it's a, you know, low skew Shopify site for a beauty brand that requires these kinds of three custom features, like that's pretty cookie cutter for us. And then it could go all the way to like, hey, we've never done this before. And we got to kind of put some of our most senior people in here to brainstorm how to solve it. So within our services business, it's, you know, there's a lot of different types of work that kind of challenge us or, or could be pretty simple and streamlined. So yeah, I, the way I think about it is like, there's some kind of customers who have a problem you're trying to solve and, you know, you can deliver it to them in a number of ways. And it just, just happens that there's a people heavy component to it maybe, yep. but then even there too, like within that, there's a lot of flexibility and creativity. Like you can, you can like create something once and you can, you could, you know, over time you can lower the manual labor aspect of it because you've automated a lot of processes, you know, like some agencies have done a really good job of like, you know, being tech enabled. So they, they can like, you know, they've used automation uh, really well to like, you know, spin up a lot of things that used to be pretty manual. And so the number of man hours, you know, that go into that go way down and mm -hmm. you can capture a lot more of the margin that way. So yeah, I'd say like, if you're willing to be creative in, in these ways, like it's, it doesn't, you know, you don't have to think of service as like a non-scalable, you know, difficult thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think maybe the flip side to that too is, if you're willing to step into industries where there are a lot of like pain points or frictions, like there are higher margins available be simply because of that that fact that it's it's so difficult. And I feel like I see that a lot in businesses, at least that I've I've worked in before. Is like sometimes the reason why one company has more margins than than another in a different industry is because like that business is just more challenging. Harder problems to solve come with you know upside as well on that front from the competitive landscape in terms of like, there are many digital agencies yeah. out there. And like, I'm just curious in terms of like how you guys view, do you guys do like cross collaborations or work with other digital agencies as well? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That, that's okay. So that that's one downside of like a digital agency, which, you know, it captures so much, but like, you know, anybody with a laptop could technically be like, oh, I'm an agency. So that's, that's one of the challenges. Cause like, you know, we'll go up and this is where like competition is really hard to define sometimes. I mean, like, yeah, we, we, we have a sense of like, you know, there, there are some folks that we see over and over again, some agencies, but there's also one, sometimes we'll go up against a, you know, like a huge consulting firm or other times we'll be going up against a freelancer literally. And, and like, it, it just really depends on the situation and how the, the client is trying to solve the problem. Cause it honestly, like there are cases like legit cases where, we could do the job or a freelancer could do the job just as well. Maybe just, you know, in a different um, process and way. And so, yeah, these things make it very challenging on, on the competitive side of things. But I think where agencies really succeed is if they really work at 
defining a clear value proposition and their kind of positioning as in like, hey, this is what we do for this particular type of client. And just the more specific, the more high value and like really focus in a disciplined way that could be like, that's where I think you can get some differentiation. And honestly, like it took us a long time to go from like general digital agency. We make websites for everybody to like, Hey, we do just Shopify sites that took a lot of work to get there. And even now, like, okay, we're positioned as like this Shopify agency, but I think there's more work to be done to be like, okay, for, is there like a particular vertical that we're going after? Is there a particular size of client that we only work with? You know, something there where we, we I think we can do a better job of uh, differentiating even more. Makes a lot of sense. My first job was in in an investment bank. It was in like a kind of a, basically the wealth management practice of an investment bank. And one of the things that was like very obvious to me was there were some wealth advisors who had clients and those clients ended up being really like a long-term liability to their business rather than an asset. Is there like a dual vetting process that you kind of have to go through when you're considering a client? And I, I realize the decision probably gets a lot more difficult once the the deals are are bigger and potentially a lot more lucrative. Sure. Yeah. I, I'd say there's some easy ones, I think like, you know, you can choose to be like, Hey, these are certain types of businesses that like, we just won't work with for various reasons. You know, maybe it's like you have a, you know, you kind of disagree with uh, the POV of a certain kind of brand or whatever they're selling. So you can kind of take those things off, you know, like, let's say like vice categories, right? It's like, oh, hey, we don't want to work with like e-cigarette brands or something like anyone selling that kind of stuff online or whatever. But let's say it's just brand selling stuff that's pretty normal. You know, we're always like, when we have these initial business conversations, you're always trying to get a feel for like, hey, how's this client going to communicate? How are they going to treat our team? You know, how are they thinking about us as a service provider? Like, do they think we're going to, you know, are they going to respect the ideas that we bring to the table or are they going to kind of see us as, you know, like vendors to do a job and then you know, try to get us, squeeze us for as much work. Like you can get a feel for a lot of different things. And once you kind of internalize that, and you know, we, we always have discussions on like, Hey, do we think this client's a good fit? And I think there's definitely uh, instances where we might be like, Hey, there's some really big flags here. Like the way that they, you know, kind of talk about, you know, their experiences with past agencies. Uh, like, did you get a, you know, did you catch that? Where like, you know, like, they like went through like a dozen different agencies and, you know, it was always the agency's fault. Like, you know, like mm -hmm. we, you kind of pick yeah. up on these things and you're like, well, maybe we don't want to be another agency on that stat. So you just kind of learn to pick up these signals to kind of have a gut feel for, and then that, that helps protect it. But yeah, sometimes you, know, you also want to just make sure there's a soundness to their business as well. Cause like, you know, we work with startups in the past of varying degrees of success and kind of integrity as well. So, and, and some like, you know, like, they could go away overnight and you you could you could have racked up a you know big kind of you know amount of receivables and you know never see that money so like you know yep. you got to really be certain that like you're protected in, in some ways there and and that's why we do want to see businesses that are a little bit more established when we work with them especially you know if if they're going to be doing something big with us or like you know the payment terms can be designed in a way that you know we get paid first before we do the work I wanted to shift gears just slightly. Maybe it'll it'll still be tangential to to Barrel and and what's going on with the company, but you also have like a personal website, peterking.com, and you have writing, both like personal writing, books that you're reading, a lot of like very cool stuff that you've been doing for a while now. What was the like origins of starting to share uh, I guess just like personal learnings online? Yeah. So 
you know, I, I've always been um, enamored with like blogging because like I started way back as an undergrad. I always write with, you know, with myself at like a future me in mind because I always want to be like, look, let me write some stuff down of like what I experienced and maybe some things I learned because, you know, future Peter will look back and be like, like, you know, that's cool. Like I've come a long way or like, hey, that, that's interesting that I kind of picked up those things then. And like, you know, I can always see how I've, you know, either internalized those lessons or or not. Um, and so that was always the motivation was like, hey, look, let me leave these crumbs for the future me, because I think I'll, you know, it's like journaling. It's, it's just an extension of that kind of uh, behavior of like, you know, wanting to write something reflective for myself. So that was really the motivation. And then over time, as I started doing that more around the business side of things, like, you know, just by the power of the internet, like other agency founders or operators would like stumble upon my blog posts and be like, oh, this is super helpful. And, 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 you know, they kind of ask me more questions and we'd end up talking about different topics and, you know, that kind of would spark some more ideas for me to write about uh, and reflect on. And so it was a, it was a really kind of a good virtuous cycle. And like, it gave me the confidence of like, cause I remember when I put it out, I'm like, well, this is for me. And I'm like, I'll be very surprised if anyone else, if it resonates with anyone else. So it was always with that caveat, but like over time I was like, Hey, I should keep sharing this and I should probably go into more detail because I think people will find it helpful. So like, I just, you know, became more confident about it and started to bring more structure to it. And, you know, I think it was a three years ago. Now I started writing agency journey, which like just gave me this kind of structured way every month to recap, like how the past month had been, you know, on the business side of things and anything I've that was top of mind or anything that I learned, I can just, you know, write it as a snapshot of that month. And I started kind of doing it. I was like, all right, let's see how long this lasts. I'll be, you know, happy if it goes on for like a year. And yeah, it's crazy. I've done it. You know, I just published like number 39, I think. So yeah, it's uh, three plus years of doing this. And that's been a really rewarding series because like I, I have folks who've kind of started reading that from day one and they've kind of stayed with me uh, through this journey and email me every once in a while being like, hey, like that really resonated with me or I'm going through the same thing and let's talk about it. So it's been a really great way to, you know, for me, build community and like just have this connection to others going through similar uh, challenges. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I had interviewed Young Su Chung, who he had built basically like two e-commerce companies. And he's like big on the whole like personal holding company structure and, and all of that stuff. And he had like a tagline on his website that said, the future of business is personal. And he meant that in like two ways. One, with respect to the personal cold holding company work that he's doing. But then two is just like, the building relationships with your audience and like with potential clients and him realizing that in the process of sharing so much, you know, of, of his journey online, that it is like slowly building trust over time. And so even if it's not like the origins or the intentions of like what you're doing, I can very easily see that like one point of differentiation for Barrel is like, oh, Peter Kang, who is sharing like his entire you know, digital agency journey publicly online, writing about the stuff that he's learning. That is like a very clear point of differentiation. So that's very, very cool to see. It's, yeah. I mean, just to that point real quick, because, you know, one thing I did also start investing in this year was like just doing more posting on LinkedIn. And that whole you know, kind of experience has been amazing because like you realize the more you share, the more you kind of float up into the consciousness of people out there and like, you know, it's this whole thing with like create, you know, being a creator, right? Like the percentage of people who actually post something versus those that consume is just, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy ratio. So like to be in that, whatever, 1% it is that create, like 
you know, you're, you're actually in like rare territory and you're actually getting, you know, like you finding some kind of leverage where you can, yeah, take your stories and get in front of a lot of people and, and connect. And so that's been super powerful to see. So I, I totally agree with that. Like the personal thing, because people buy from people and the more you kind of show up in people's feeds and just kind of, mm. you know, tell stories that resonate with them, the more they see you as like, you know, somebody that maybe they should be interacting with as well. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. The other thing that you do on your, your personal website is you have like a list of books that you have previously read, which is like pretty extensive and long. And the the backdrop of your, of your zoom here is like a, a big bookshelf in terms of the, of reading as a habit. And I know you're, you're big on habits was reading something that you had done early on since you were like at, at Columbia and just continued to do. It seems like pretty programmatic and you've been doing it for years now. And like, even for me at 27, seeing the compounding power of just reading books, like if you can read one book a week, just how much of a competitive advantage you have over thinking and understanding the world is just like insane. So just tell me a little bit about your reading journey. Yeah. You know, honestly, I was, I did not read a lot. I was actually a very, yeah, like very lazy about books in general, like a lot of Cliff's notes, honestly, <laughs> um, throughout <laughs> high school and college but uh, yeah it was it was actually in my uh, early 30s so this was like you know yeah uh, i think early 30s i was like hey i think you know going back to the the business journey that sewok and i undertook of like wanting to learn more about business side of things and books were one way to for us to get gain that knowledge and so i i sought out a lot of business books and i was like yeah i gotta just read and just kind of get this stuff you know like just make sure I not only am I reading these, but like am I kind of like taking away the right lessons? So I would actually pair like I'll read it, I'll write a blog post about it, these books that I read, and you know just it kind of created a good good little habit for me. But what really got me going and gamified for me was like I think you know when when Readwise the app came out, that yeah. was super powerful because I had been reading a lot of stuff on Kindle, so I had a lot of Kindle highlights ready to go. And Readwise does this thing where every morning you can review these flashcards from highlights that you highlighted, you know, from years ago, even like uh, just from your Kindle library. And I was like, wow, like, this is so awesome. Cause like all these things, these books that I read two, three, four, five years ago, I can resurface, like that get resurfaced to me. And it makes me think about the concepts that I thought about then. And like, it, you know, kind of sparks different ideas and you're getting value from a book you read in the past again. And like, I'm like, that's such a cool thing. And like, to know that I can continue to feed this machine if I keep reading more books and highlighting more things. You just, it just makes you like want to every day. I'm like, oh, I got a couple, I got like 10 minutes, you know, while I'm waiting for whatever. Or, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm just hanging out with my baby, but, you know, he's falling asleep. Let me just, you know, pull up my Kindle and just read and highlight some stuff. And like, you know, these things add up. And, you know, I think at this point, I have like almost 8,000 like highlights, you know, kind of in, in, in the Readwise app. And, and, just, you know, knowing that like, you know, I'll be served whatever, eight cards tomorrow. It's, it's great. And like that got me, yeah, that, that's that been really helpful in helping to build my uh, reading habit. And then the other thing that I do as a, just a rule is like, whenever someone recommends a book, I just buy it on the spot. I'm like, that's the uh, personal rule I just put in. And like, it's, it's funny. Cause I'm like, there's like hundreds of books on my Kindle that I haven't even like downloaded yet just cause I bought it on the spot. But like, yeah. like, you know, it's just one of those things. Cause I like, I realize I'm like, if I don't do that, it's one of those things you just forget. And then you never like, you know, that the serendipity of having to come across that book again is just so much, you know, rarer or like just harder to kind of come across it again. But like knowing that I bought it, 
like, you know, I browse my Kindle library over and over again, like, you know, just be like, oh yeah, I don't remember when I bought this, but I had this book. I just, well, let me check it out. So it creates these kinds of moments where I can just, if I, if I get sick of a book or I'm like stuck on something, I can just open up another one ready to go. Yeah. I, I try and do something like very similar in terms of the practice. And the, the tricky thing that I am trying to work through is like, there's the balance of like, how much time should you spend reflecting on the learnings from a book versus like, you know, just going from one book to the next. And right now I, I still think that there is value in like keeping my reading pace very high because I, I think there's like a weird thing with reading books about like, sometimes you'll read a book and then you'll, you'll finish it. Somebody will ask you a question about like, explain, you know, what you learned in this book in like a summary paragraph. Right. And it's very hard for me to do that oftentimes. But the thing that I do find is that if I have a very specific experience that kind of has relevance to the book that I had read, maybe like three months down the line or a year down the line or two years down the line, I don't really know when, but I'll remember like a key insight from a book that I had read. And even though I couldn't like come up with a summary bullet points of like what I actually learned from that book, like a lot of the value of knowledge is kind of like hidden or like in your yeah. subconscious. And so there's, there was a very real fear for a while of like, wow, I'm consuming a ton of content and I don't know if I'm actually like learning that much. But then yeah. over the years, I've, I've become to realize like a lot of that information is like kind of hidden, but it's, it's there. Yeah. No, I, I'm totally with you on that. And I think honestly, this is why I'm like the the apps and the cards are so the app and the card, you know, the readwise cards are so important to me. Like the high mm -hmm. like just being able to because you're right. Like I don't remember a lot of these like points from these books I read, you know, five, six, seven years ago. But like when a highlight comes and like, you know, sometimes the highlight has the lesson embedded in there. And sometimes there's notes that I've appended to it too from like way back. And like I'm like, cool, like this is this is gold. It's like, it's just, you know, it's, it's popped into my consciousness and like, I can do something with this. And that's, that's been a super, you know, like powerful way to, you know, kind of get value from something, you know, from the consumption way back. Yeah. One of the the books that I, I did, I think scrolling through your personal website, see that you had read was richer, wiser, happier. And that was one of my, like within the last 12 months, one of my favorite reads. And I had reached out to William Green on X and I'm hoping to have him on like kind of later in, in 2024 for a awesome. conversation. But in terms of like the investing and also your, your journey with investing as well, you kind of like provide annual updates on like your investing portfolio. I'm curious, like just in terms of your investing philosophy, the types of investments that you've made over time, kind of what you're most interested in, in right now, like your relationship with money, how, how that's evolved. Yeah. So the practice, you know, started, what was it like, let's say maybe eight years ago when, I, cause I was, I finally got turned on to like, Hey, like you can put your money into like index funds and let it compound, you know, like you can do these things to like, safe for retirement in a more responsible way or whatever. Like I, you know, I was just kind of such a noob to uh, personal finance. Mm. And so this is like my early thirties. And I was like, I was like, goodness, I'm so late to the game, but you know, better late than never. Right. And you know, a lot of it was like the, the general, like, Hey, you know, I've, I, I kind of read a lot on the fire movement stuff and like just saving a ton of money to like, you know, put into savings and things like that. So th did a lot of that early on, but yeah, over time, you know, as my own, like, kind of income grew from the business growing, like, you know, and I got to think more about, Hey, like, you know, what are different ways to put money to use? And let me make sure like every year I'm able to at least share like what I've learned from, you know, trying different things. And, you know, like 
it's led me to like, you know, doing some stuff in real estate with friends, you know, done some early stage, like, you know, angel investing as well as like doing dumb stuff with the crypto and also like trying to pick stocks, single stocks and things like that. But, but then like, you know, the thing that I also, I learned throughout all of this was like, Hey, the best way to invest money is actually to build businesses. Like, you know, and I'm like, yeah, like it's true. Like the value that I created with barrel and, you know, that's, it's kind of, it's, it's ability to generate cash flow and kind of, you know, or, or provide me with a living. I'm like, wow, like that's a form of investing that I put in. And then like, you know, at, at least in terms of sweat equity and over time, like, you know, there's some moments where I've put in real uh, dollars back into the business and things like that. And like, you, you see the, the compounding and, and the returns from that. And then, you know, with these new businesses in our portfolio, like we're like, you know, within our holding company, I'm like, Hey, this was like the best investment we could have made, you know, in the last few years. Cause like, look mm. how much, look how much cash is flowing from the initial investment. And now we got a real business that has a enterprise value. And, you know, like, this is cool. So like my mind shifted from like, okay, that's why like on the personal side, I'm like, yeah, keep it as simple and dumb as possible. Like, you know, I'll put some stuff in, you know, high interest bearing, you know, money market accounts, and then I'll put some stuff into index funds and, you know, the rest into like my kids' college savings accounts or whatever. But like a lot of the excess profits we have from our holding company, um, like use it to incubate another business or, you know, reinvest in growing the existing business that we have, or, you know, maybe go out and acquire another business. Like those are the, like we're thinking in those ways. And cause mm. we're like, cause this is where we can bring our, 17 years of having made every mistake in the book, having, you know, done all these things with these types of businesses that we could distill it into, you know, executing in a smarter manner with, with these businesses. So that's kind of the investment philosophy now is like that. This is where we're going to get the most, the highest returns is if we take our experience and really put it to work. As you think about like barrel today, because you guys basically started with you and Sewook and then over like 15 plus years have like 20 plus employees, like multiple different subsidiary companies within like the barrel holding company. In the next like five to 10 years, can you kind of see the same kind of trajectory? Are you looking to like reposition or think about the business any differently? I just, do you think a lot on like a five to 10 year time horizon or is it kind of just one day at a time type of thing? Well, there's one day at a time, of course, but like, yeah, we, we, we talk about, you know, like three-year plans. We talk about, Hey, what's the next 15 years look like? So we, we have those conversations, you know, I write, I, you know, I'll write my memos, uh, you know, um, in my notion of like, this is my desired future state for these kinds of businesses. You know, one thing that I, I've, you know, come to believe more and more is like, whether or not we sell, I think it's important to build all our companies into assets that are attractive to buyers. Like, I think that's like, just a good, healthy way to run a business. And so what that means is, okay, like what, like what is a, what does a buyer want to see in a, in a good business? You know, that's, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, all right, cool. Like they want to see good margins. They want to see, you know, client retention. They want to see growth. They want to see, you know, really good systems in place. They want to see, you know, retention of talent. They want to see like different ways of sales and marketing, like finely tuned engine, like all those. I'm like, like, that's, that's great. And so I'm like, let's get, all our things should be, you know, designed in a way that like, if we're not there now, like, you know, what are the gaps and how do we get to a place where like all of our assets are, you know, super attractive and increasingly more attractive mm -hmm. to prospective buyers. And yeah. And as, as they scale bigger, like the nature of the buyers change, right. It could be, you know, Hey, it could be like 
somebody looking at like, you know, these small, uh, small businesses, or it might be like a private equity firm trying to do something, you know, with the platform plan, you know, we could have a company that's big enough to be, be something to start that with, or it could be a strategic that needs to acquire a business like ours. So it, it's really interesting having kind of, you know, have these conversations of like, like, what are people looking to buy and like, what are the characteristics and how do we maximize for those things? And then, and that will just give us a good way to run a good business across the board and just have, you know, establish standards within that I think, you know, would just be great. And it'd just be a way of being excellent at business. And so I think just really playing that across, you know, our existing businesses and whatever we acquire or, or incubate more of that's, that's the next like 10, 15 years. That's, that's the playbook. And, you know, who knows, like maybe we'll end up selling some assets. We'll, you know, end up uh, you know, buying assets. Like, so there's, there's definitely, you know, opportunity, I think opportunities that we're, we'll, we'll have yeah, different interactions uh, with the market. I've just like recently started to write kind of monthly summaries for myself that I share with, with people in, in my network and have found a lot of value out of it. And I do sometimes kind of like project into the future. Oh, it'll be cool five years from now, 10 years from now to kind of look back at some of the writing that, that I've done and what I was thinking then. And in like going through your, your page, you have been doing that for, you know, over, <laughs> over 10 years. So it was a lot of fun kind of following like your personal journey, but also like the development and evolution of, of Barrel. For people, I guess, that want to learn more about Barrel or get like connected with you and potentially like see if they have projects that they want to entertain, what's the best way for them to, to kind of get connected? Yeah, Barrel's website is barrelny.com. And uh, yeah, my personal site is peterkang.com. And yeah, pretty active on Twitter and LinkedIn. Peter Kang 34 is the handle. Awesome. When I was, uh, when we crossed paths at uh, Capital Camp, I made like a mental note. Oh, we sh- I-, I should at some point in the future have a chat with with Peter and kind of learn more about like everything that you're up to. So really enjoyed the time and look forward to, to sharing the conversation with others as well. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Idea Exchange Podcast. For more information on the podcast and more information about myself, you can visit tylercho.com. I also send out a monthly newsletter to friends, family, and colleagues where I essentially share the best ideas that I came across from that month, whether it was books that I've been reading, podcasts that I've been listening to, or just conversations that I've been having. So feel free to subscribe on the homepage of my personal website. Until next time.